You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, good morning, and let me add my happy Mother's Day uh, to you, and so uh, if you're gonna, if you'll forgive me for a second, I'm gonna say Happy Mother's Day to my mom, who will listen to this podcast. Um, I love you. Uh, you're a great mom. Happy Mother's Day. So, all right, that's out of the way. Here, here's uh, what I want to do. I also want to reiterate. So, Todd mentioned Discover Bethel. If you're kicking the tires around here, would love for you to come to Discover Bethel. It is a great. Night, and then we'll have two Sunday morning follow-ups. But Wednesday night, it's really great. Um, and so come to that. Really, we'll feed you dinner. It's a it's a be a great evening, and look forward to that as always. One of my favorite things uh, here at Bethel. I need to um, before we get into the sermon this morning. I need to make an announcement. Let you guys know something. Um, I want to take a moment. We're going to pray for. Uh, Dave and Mary Smith and their family. Dave, um, you know Dave because he plays in the band. He's the guy who plays the uh, uh, mandolin sometimes. He is a fantastic guitar player. We're so blessed to have um, the Smiths uh, a part of the body here at Bethel. But their son, uh, Will, uh, 23 years old, uh, passed away this weekend. And um, it was unexpected and... um, very hard and difficult. He uh, was set to graduate from DBU uh, here in a couple of weeks, and they uh, got the call yesterday morning that there had been an accident. And so just want to pray for them. I was with them last night, and they want you to know as the church body how much they have so appreciated your care and support, um, their faith, um, they, they still believe that God is good. And it is us as the body that gets to come around families at this time and help fight for their faith. Because we can't do it all on our own. We, we just we can't do it on our own. And um, they're not grieving as though they have no hope. They have great hope. And they're deeply sad. And um, so, as a church body, as their brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to bear that burden with them in the ways that we can. And so if you know them, uh, by all means, call them and text them. They'd love to hear from you. Um, go by and see them. Uh, the funeral is, um, is it Wednesday, Fritz? Thursday. Thursday. Funeral's on Thursday. Visitation Wednesday night. So if you would, let, let me pray for the Smith family, and then we'll look at God's Word. Father, we come to you this morning, and you are... You're still sovereign today. We declare that as a church. Father, our hope and our meaning is found in your son Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And so because of that, death is not the last word. Not now and not for eternity. And so, Father, we come claiming those truths, and we pray for Dave and for Mary and and 
for Colin who this morning wake up to um, their world in the temporary feeling very different and their grief and their sadness. And Father, we pray you just overwhelm them with grace and mercy. Father, I pray as the body of Christ we would love them well. Father, you give us opportunities to stand with them and grieve with them and have faith with them and, and for them. And that, Father, above all things, that you'd be honored by this. We give you great thanks that Will is a believer and that in this moment he stands in your presence, whole and complete and healed. And so, Father, we, we thank you for that. And during this time, we pray for the Smith family. And so, Father, we come to you and pray the only way we can, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, if you allow me, I want to transition into Genesis chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 2 and... Um, that's where we'll be this morning. Um, this morning, actually, I'll tell you what we're doing. We're going to begin a new series. We just finished our series on First Peter. Um, it is our typical practice that we um, find a book of the Bible. We walk through the book from beginning to end, uh, verse by verse. But we're going to take a couple of weeks and do something we don't normally do. And that is, I'm gonna, we're going to teach about a topic, and the topic is marriage and parenting, specifically with the view of what does it look like when marriage and parenting is saturated with the gospel of grace and not, not the law. And what is the difference and how does that look? And so this morning, uh, we're going to begin this series and I'm going to talk about marriage. To do that, I want to uh, read to you about the husband store, all right? This is a brand new store. Uh, just opened in New York City that sells husbands. So when, when women go to choose a husband, they have to follow the instructions at the entrance. All right, here's the instructions. You may visit the store only once. There are six floors, and the value of the products increase as you ascend the flights. You may choose any item from a particular floor or may choose to go up to the next floor, but you cannot go back down except to exit the building. So, a woman goes to the husband's store to find a husband. On the first floor, the door reads, Floor 1, these men have jobs. The second floor sign reads, Floor 2, these men have jobs and love kids. The third floor sign reads, Floor 3, these men have jobs, love kids, and are extremely good-looking. Wow, she thinks, but she feels compelled to keep going. She goes to the fourth floor, and the sign reads, Floor 4, these men have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead good-looking, and help with housework. Oh, mercy me, she explains. I can hardly stand it. Still, she goes on to the fifth floor, and the sign reads there, Floor 5, these men have jobs, love kids, are drop-dead gorgeous, help with housework, and have a strong romantic streak. She's so tempted to stay, but she goes on to the sixth floor. 
Floor six. It says, you are visitor 31,456,012 to this floor. There are no men on this floor. The floor exists solely as proof that women are impossible to please. Thank you for shopping at the husband's store. But to avoid gender bias, let me tell you about the wife's store across the street. It also has six floors. The rules are the same. First floor says these, uh, these wives love sex. Sorry for the little kids. You can explain it at home. Uh, <laughs> second floor has wives love sex and have money. Floors three through six have never been visited. All right, so from that I want to go to Genesis chapter 2. I want to, I do, I want to talk about marriage this morning, and, and as we do it, I want to consider three things. And the first of those is what is the design of God's marriage? How has God designed marriage? The second thing I want to talk about is what about disappointment in marriage? What about disappointment in marriage? And thirdly, I want to address, if we get there, um, I don't know that we got there first hour, but in good faith that we will this hour. Um, what is this dream that we all seem to be chasing when it comes to marriage? So I'm going to begin in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to begin with verse 18, and here's how God's Word records it. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Literally, what the text is saying is that he is not good. Everything's been declared good, but when it comes to man in his state of being alone, the text says he is not good. The word alone means by, by himself, or, or it means only a, a portion or only a part of him. He's, he's half of who he's supposed to be, is what the text is saying. See, the problem that we are given here, the first problem that we come to in the Bible, Genesis 2, 18, is that we find a man, but he's only half the man. He's only half the image that God created him to be. And he's going to be frustrated to do what he was designed to do, namely to, to work and keep creation, to have dominion, to be fruitful and multiply. You see, full life, we find here in Genesis chapter 2, full life is found in community. The life we were designed for is not found all by ourselves. It's found in community with others. And ground zero for that we find in Genesis chapter 2 is marriage. The great thing is when you get to the New Testament... Um, the New Testament is able to talk about singleness in a way that is given a prize. In a culture, in the ancient Near East culture, where singleness is looked at not as a virtue by any means, but something to be avoided, the New Testament reclaims that and says, no, 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 it can be fulfilled. What you were designed for can be fulfilled. It can be fulfilled in covenant with the church, with the body of Christ, with the community of Christ. Paul agrees there's, there's fulfillment found in covenant with the church. And that's why even as 
Those that are married, you, you cannot do your marriage all alone. You need other couples that are a part of this. See, Adam was only half of what he was created to be. He had his work, but he didn't have anyone else. You, you notice that from this text, it's God's idea. It says, I will make. Gar marriage is God's idea. So he established it, and therefore, it is under his authority. He designed it, and therefore, it has a purpose that he intends for its design. Our interest should be in understanding what God's purpose for marriage is. There's a way to, to do marriage that aligns with God's intentions. But there's also a way to do marriage that is out of alignment. And it's like your car. It's where you get the suspension aligned when you put new tires on it so that, so that it doesn't vibrate, it doesn't shake, that when you're trying to go straight, the steering wheel passively moves to one side or the other. It does damage to the tires, damage to your car. The Bible says, no, no, align with the one who designed marriage. You know, it's interesting. The Bible begins with a wedding here in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve. And it ends with a wedding, Christ and the church in Revelation. It says this, a helper fit for him. It means a, a, a counterpart. Literally, it means the other half. You might think of it, what's, what's most like half a moon? Well, the other half of the moon. What's most like the man? Woman. Which is, let me, let me say this as an aside for a second. See, mothers of sons only see half a man. The half that they can mother. That's why the man will resent a woman who wants to mother them. So men and women in, in their differences, they then become whole. And so woman, wife, you complete your husband as a wife, not as a mother. Guys, your wives complete you as a wife, not as a mother. You continually put her in situations where you're begging her to mother you. You're not honoring her as your wife. Well, it goes on in Genesis 2.19, and it says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Everything, notice, everything in creation is made out of the ground except for the woman. She's made from the man. In verse 19 here, what we see is that, so Adam, the dominion, authority, responsibility, those things are given to him. He is exercising it. He is the CEO of creation. And he is doing it in all the freedom that God delegated to him. I mean, what could be more fulfilling than that, right? But that, we'll find, is not the solution. See, enrichment is not the solution. Your career is not the solution. Your advancement or all those things that you might reach for, for significance, those are not 
the solution. Completion, that's the solution. And so in verse 20, it says, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Dominion for man. His, his work, what he was, it's not fully satisfying or completing. I mean, I, I know this. Listen, my, my job, things at work can be going great. But if I am not fit at home with, with Leslie, then man, every, everything in my life is out of sync. There are some commentators that think, and it may be right, that verse 20, God does this to, to cultivate or to reveal this need that is in Adam. This, this need that is a part of his creation. The, the word helper, um, ezer, is the, is the Hebrew word. It means that humans cannot fulfill their design except in relationship with others. In verse 21, it says, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, it closed up its place with flesh. So God causes a, a deep sleep, and Adam is going to wake up in covenant with Eve. He's going to wake up married. He's going to wake up, and the whole world will have changed. In fact, when God does that in the Bible, when he puts people to sleep and they wake up, I mean, he does it with Abraham. He puts Abraham to sleep. Abraham wakes up. He's in covenant with God. God has done all of this. And in 22, in the, in the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made it into a woman and brought her to the man. We see in verse 20, the wife's, a wife's closest communion will be with her husband. It should be. And a man's closest com communion will be with his wife. I mean, she was made from him. See, I mean, Genesis, this is how the story of creation goes. I mean, you know this. It begins, and the earth was, was chaotic. It was, it was formless, and it was void of, of anything, of any life. And what God does is He takes the sky and He fills it with the sun and the moon and the stars. And He takes the sea and He fills it with fish. And He takes the land because the land needs vegetation. It needs inhabitants. And man needs woman. You know, Genesis is the only creation account in the ancient Near East with a separate account for the creation of woman. God took Adam apart and put him back together. Guys, um, that's what marriage will feel like a lot of times, doesn't it? God taking you apart and putting you back together. And then it says he brought her to the man like a, like a father of the bride. Adam, he doesn't take a wife. He receives a wife. See, the best things are not our work. They're God's work. Swindoll tells this great story. He's, uh, 
He's pre-preaching about marriage, and he, and he tells about this woman who, who wrote him and said that she hung a pair of trousers in her room, and, and every day she prayed that God would fill them. Well, there was a teenage boy at church that day, and he was without his parents, and uh, later that week, the mom calls Swindoll and says, what, what in the world did you preach about on Sunday? And he says, well, why, why do you ask? He says, well, my son came home, and he's got a bikini hanging on his bed. Some of you will get that later. <laughs> Notice, though, we're not told what she looks like. It doesn't matter. She's beautiful. She's, she's the one for him. Sometimes I say it this way. It's not that I like brunettes. I like a brunette. She's the other half. You know, some... some have speculated, I, I don't know if this is true, it sounds plausible to me though, but God takes the rib from Adam, he creates Eve, and they say, you know, God explained the universe to Adam. And before he woke Adam up, he took some time to explain man to Eve. <laughs> Eve, once, before we wake him up, let me tell you a few things about this man. In Genesis 2, 23, the, then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, notice it's, it's the reaction. It's, it's the first word spoken by man. It's, it's, it's almost, it's, it sounds as though Adam, that, that it's a reunion. It's kind of like, oh, there you are. There you are. I want you to take note of this. There's nothing in this account about children. The wife is valued alone. The, the marriage, the, the marriage is grounded in, in covenant, not for the kids. So let me say it this way. If, if you're in an arrangement this morning and you say things like or have thought things like we're, we're staying together for the kids, it, it's, time, it's time for some help. Talk to a pastor or a counselor or take a moment and be open to your small group. There's so much more that God's designed for marriage than staying together for the kids. That's why in 1 Peter 3, 7, Fritz preached during our series in Peter. Peter says, you know, live with your wife in an understanding way. Make a study of your wife. Your goal is to get a Ph.D. of this woman. With all the joy and all the pain that that comes with. Well, in verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The result is, that, listen, so, so first, leave, which means there's a change in priorities. There's a shift of obligations. You're no longer a consumer of your parents, no, no longer mothered, no, no longer fathered. Now you are united. 
See, the right response of a child to their parents is independence. The right response of a spouse is allegiance. It says, cleave or hold fast like glue, like a rib. I was talking with a couple this morning after the first service. He said, you know, that, that cleave, that it just, I'll tell you what that means. It means you never stop chasing her. I think he's right. And then it says one flesh. It's speaking of the sexual union, but more than that. It's a physical union that, that unites emotion and spirit and soul and interests and pursuits. And that's why it's exclusive. And that's why it's without reservation. Verse 25, that they were naked and then not ashamed. It, listen, marriage is not a man-made institution. It is designed by God. He's the architect. He's the catalyst. He's the designer. Marriage is by Him. And it is for Him. It is by Him. And it is for Him. So let me say this morning, if, if you're, so if you're married this morning, if it's your first marriage or second marriage, or third, whatever it is, your marriage is for Him. This is where you'll glorify God. It's in this union. In fact, Malachi chapter 2, the prophet Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. You know what he says? He says this. He says, did He not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. It's not just a covenant between a man and a woman. It's a covenant between a man and a woman and the Spirit of God. It is not a two-party covenant. It is a three-party covenant. And the union is for the glory of God. It is the pinnacle of creation. And then in 2.25 you see that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed in some ways, that's, a, that's the summary of all the creation account. It's what all creation's been, been building to. That, that God has created man and woman in His image and set them in, in the midst of all that He has created. There's spiritual intimacy and emotional intimacy and physical intimacy, and it says they're not ashamed. And what's great is that Moses is writing this in the midst of a shame culture. Everywhere else in the Old Testament, nakedness is a form of humiliation leading to shame, except for here. So, see, Genesis, it. it permits this one flesh. It, 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 no, it, it presents this one flesh. It is a good thing protected by marriage, and it's not an evil thing that's only permissible because of marriage. God designs this. Elaine Stedman, she's the wife of the old preacher Ray Stedman. She, she wrote this. She said they were both naked and were not ashamed. They'd both self-awareness and other awareness, but without self-centeredness. 
the crux of their commitment was God himself and the pristine beauty of that threefold relationship. They were secure. They were unthreatened. They were unthreatening. Having studied neither Freud nor Skinner, they knew who they were and why they were there. A transparent, open, and guileless relationship was the result of their submission to his loving authority under which they were totally free to be fully human. <clears throat> you know, I'll tell you something I learned. Um, the Bible doesn't end at Genesis chapter 2. It's a whole bunch of stuff that comes after it. And all the stuff that comes after it is the working out of what takes place in Genesis chapter 3. When we close chapter 2, and here it is, the pinnacle of creation, the, the masterpiece of all that God has done. And then you open up Genesis chapter 3, and it begins with a failure to trust God, and then a, and then a failure to protect each other. That they failed to fulfill their design. They traded what God had designed for them in pursuit of personal interests and desires and temptations. And then, then they turned on each other. That they moved from one flesh to against flesh. They, they moved from one another to against another. And there's no hint of personal responsibility for their failing. It's all other responsibility. See, sin entered the world. Sin entered marriage. So what broke marriage? Sin. That's what broke marriage. Everything else is a symptom. Sex is not the problem. Communication's not the problem. Money's not the problem. In-laws are not the problem. Sin's the problem. And the only answer there is for sin is Christ. To be healed by Christ. To be saved by Christ. To be washed by Christ. To be redeemed. And so the answer... So what can heal a marriage? Only Christ can heal a marriage. Sex can't heal it. A, a, a strategy can't heal it. Well, the strategies are great. I'm all for them. It's not going to heal your marriage. Education can't heal it. Only Christ can heal your marriage. And that's the point Paul makes. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives us what in the New Testament, it's the longest exposition of, of marriage. In chapter 5, verse 22 through 33, Paul takes up marriage. After all that Jesus has done, he now turns to the husband and to the wife. So you've been saved. You've been redeemed. You've been loved by God. You've been... You've been healed. You... You stand before God, washed and pure. And that, because of that, Paul is going to appeal back to the design of marriage. It's, it's the reversal of 
self-pursuit. It's, it's the pursuit of, of another. It's, it's the pursuit of, of the one you're married to. It's the pursuit of your brothers and sisters in Christ. In our pursuit of one another, we find in the New Testament, is really a, a way we pursue God. Giving yourself to one another. Sacrificing yourself for one another. One has said that a woman is called to live in a voluntary, submissive, supportive way towards her husband. And yet the man is called to die in a sacrificially loving way for his wife. Chip Ingram gives this definition of love. I think it's great. He says this, Love is choosing to give another what they need the most when they deserve it the least at great personal cost to me. And I'll tell you, marriage affords the daily opportunity to love. Dan Allender said it this way, says marriage requires radical commitment to love our spouses as they are while longing for them to become what they are not yet. Every marriage moves either towards enhancing one another's glory in Christ or toward degrading each other. I've probably told you this when I was, I was younger. I pastored a church in Wichita. And I was younger and the church was older and I did this Wednesday night Bible study and um, all the folks in that Bible study had been married you know, 35 years 45 years, 50 years, had a couple and then had been married 60 years, Henry and Naomi Egley. And he, he, was, he was old, and I guess he'd married her when she was a child. I don't know. <laughs> and I just remember, so we, it was a Wednesday night Bible study, and there were 10 to 15 to 18 couples, and all of them had been married longer than I'd even been alive. And I'd ask him, I'd say, well, you know, well, what do you want to study next? We just go through books of the Bible. And Henry Egley, near 90 years old, Henry Egley said, You know, I've been in the church all my life, and nobody's ever taught the Song of Solomon. I said, Henry, do you know what that's about? He said, Well, I'm not dead yet. I said, Oh, okay. Well, so I embarked to teach the Song of Solomon to this group of men and women, these married couples. And I will tell you, this is one of the hardest things I ever did. I, I would get to some places, I'd look and say, look, I'm not, I'm not covering the next three verses. We're going to skip those because I can't talk about this with you. And I remember somewhere along the line, and I, and I think it was Henry who made this observation. I hadn't seen it, and then I began to study it, and, and not everybody shares the way this works out, but it is an interesting observation in the Song of Solomon. There's a refrain that is similar that appears three times in the Song of Solomon. Many of you know it. It may be on your wedding rings or you had it read at your wedding. and It's a refrain and it's a little different each time, but listen to the progression of the statement. It begins, and, and the first time we hear it is in Song of Solomon chapter 2, verse 16. It says, My beloved is mine, and I am his. 
He graces among the lilies. Well, well, the second time it appears, it says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. The third time it appears is chapter 7, verse 10, and it says this, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. And Henry made the observation. He said, you know, at the beginning, it, 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 there's a self-focus. My beloved is mine. Mine, 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 mine. And I'm his. The second one is, is a little more mutual focused. I, I am my beloved. I, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. But the last time it appears, there's this maturity in a relationship that says, listen, I am my beloved's, and his desires for me. It moves from this self-focus to a mutual focus to a other focus. It's this maturing of a marriage. See, that's what God's design for us is. Listen, the solution is not a system. It is a savior. We need to be saved and healed. Tim Keller writes that the key to marriage is simply reenacting the gospel to each other. You, you can talk about communication skills or other stuff, and they're all good, but basically knowing how to forgive and knowing how to repent, if you can both forgive and repent, it doesn't matter how different you are, you'll be okay too. Christians who are married, no matter how incompatible, if you can repent and forgive and rehearse the gospel, you'll be okay. See, the gospel and a deep understanding of the cross make a difference in marriage. You know, it's interesting, at the end of Paul's exposition on marriage, he he says it this way, he concludes it this way. He, in fact, he, he draws, he, he pulls right out of Genesis chapter 2. He says, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's straight out of Genesis. But then he says this, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects the husband. One writer said it this way, how could anything so fragile, frail, and fickle as marriage represent something so holy and faithful and perfect as Christ? See, knowing how stained and how ruined marriage will become, God chooses to use that as the metaphor to show how beautiful Christ will be. In the midst of it as the Redeemer. How beautiful the gospel will look. It brings me to my second point. What about when marriage is disappointing? What about when marriage is disappointing? See, I think most people approach marriage, well, one of the reasons, 
is that most people approach marriage by default. The, the marriage by accident rather than marriage on purpose. So some of the ways that we do that is that we, well, we come into marriage and we have a personal history or a family history. Right? Maybe you grew up and, and you saw a great marriage and you say, you know what, I want my marriage to be just like that. Maybe you grew up in a, around a terrible marriage. And you say, you know, it's never going to be like that. See, the problem is, growing up, we really only have the perspective a child has. So on this side, we don't know the, the tears and the sweat and the, and the scars and the heartache behind what looks like such a beautiful marriage. What is a beautiful marriage? And on this side, we were unable to see the absolute selfishness that destroyed it. You know, another one is the unrealistic expectations that are unmet. The unrealistic expectations that are unmet. My, my spouse... Meet all my needs. Let me, let me rant here for a second. It is possible I'm going to make some of you upset. And I'm sorry about that. Sort of. You know, I think there's this really dangerous thing going on. I, I, I don't say this at anybody. And I, I don't say this in a, in a way that questions a, a motive. That's not my intention. But the consequence of it, or the fallout from it, or the result of it, let me, let me just say that the only way I can describe it are, these, are the uh, mommy blogs that are out there. You know, the, the, the gal who's married, and the pictures are all perfect, and the kids are all perfect, and the husband's perfect, and there's perfect vulnerability when he messes up and always able to process it perfectly because he's got the gift of writing and, and there's always a silver lining and, 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 and because this person has a way with words, it's able to make you think, listen, the stuff that happens in the privacy of my home, it doesn't work out that way and I'm not able to process it that way. And my silver linings don't seem to be as bright and my husband doesn't look as good with his shirt tucked in. Told less, I keep telling Les, I said, you got to have a blog. And the first blog post is, is be titled, The Fat Guy in a Blue Chair. And that's me. I got a blue chair that sits by our bed, and I sit in it at night with a little lamp until she tells me, turn off the light. And that's where I read or I watch Netflix or I tinker around on my sermon. So write that blog and take that picture. The fat guy in a blue chair, and I love him, and I have no reason to. I love him, and I can't, for the life of me, figure out why. You know, it's more insidious than that. There's the romance comedies, the rom-coms, the fantasy novels, the pornography. All those feeds these unrealistic expectations that can never be met. And let me tell you a secret. Expectations won't make a marriage work. 
You can keep piling them up and piling them up and piling them up. Expectations will not move the needle into the positive on your marriage one bit. Let me say this. There is, there is something wonderful in your marriage, something to be shared and, and, and cherished. So often it is buried under the disappointment of unmet expectations. Is another one. Uh, co competing loyalties. I, I know men and women and counseled with it. They haven't left home. But whether there's an enmeshment with, with mom and dad and, and how they did things, or whether they, they, they haven't left home in the negative sense, that they've, they've carried all this bitterness into their marriage. They haven't resolved this. They haven't forgiven somebody. And they come in and think, well, I'll just get married. And all that love will cover over the bitterness. And it won't. You come into your marriage bitter, let me tell you what it'll do. It'll make your marriage bitter. It'll sour everything. For some of you, it's time to, to leave home. There's another one. It's a loyalty to our kids. I remember Bob and Ann Livesay. They were here a few years ago. They did a marriage conference right over here in that building. And they were videoing it. They were putting it out on tape. And I remember Ann Livesay. She said this. It was great. She said, marriage is the most important of all human relations, most permanent of all human relationships. Children pass through a family. They pass through a marriage. Parenting is temporary. Marriage is permanent. The greatest investment needs to be your marriage. There's loyalty to work and loyalty to ministry. There's loyalty to self. That will ruin your marriage every time. Loyalty to self. That is the, that is the fast train to disappointment. And there's one last one. I'd call it having a a marriage saturated in law rather, saturated, rather than saturated in grace. Here's what I mean. I mean so we seek to change through demands. We seek change in our partner through demands, or we seek change in our spouse through guilt. We, we seek change for our, ourselves, for, for our benefit. Let me tell you something. The law demands what it can never produce. The law demands what it can never produce. If there is any place that I am qualified to talk, if I have any qualification, I'll tell you, it's right here. I spent years in my marriage demanding my expectations be met or how I think it ought to look almost ruined my marriage. It was year seven. I remember we were in Richardson, Texas and Leslie and I were sitting at an Atlanta bread company. And I told her. I said, look. I mean, it's my last year in seminary. I, I said, look. You've you got to change here. Well, we're not going to be able to do this much longer. You, something's got to change. And by something, I meant her. 
I said, we need to find you a counselor. So we did, and I, and I went. And I'll tell you, um, to tell you how our first counseling session started off. I sat there. We sat there with this guy. And I proceeded to tell him before we got after, through all the niceties to say to him, hey, listen, I just, just wanted to tell you. I began to give him my resume. You know, I've got a master's degree in marriage family therapy. I've been in private practice. I'm about to graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. And I just want you to know I'm here to help you with her in any way I can. I really said that. to my embarrassment. In the next nine months, he unraveled me and helped to breathe the gospel of grace into my marriage for the first time. It saved our marriage. It at least saved it from years of bitterness. I'm so thankful for that. I am so thankful my wife endured my idiocy for those years and days and months. I'm out of time. Let, let, let me say it this way. Let me, speak, let me speak to a different group here for a second. What if it never gets better? Let me ask you that. What if it doesn't get better? Well, what if the disappointment, I mean, we've talked about the design and we've talked about the disappointment and we said, look, this is how it's designed, this is the way it's supposed to be and, and there are going to be disappointments, but let me say, what if it doesn't ever get better? Because, you know what, here's the reality, it might not Are you still in on this deal? Well, what's your faith in? Is your faith in the hope that your marriage is going to be better? Or is your faith in the hope of the resurrected Jesus who has saved you, brought you out of sin and death, and that He will return when the trumpet sounds? Where is your faith? And if you endure the disappointment of one of these for a lifetime, are you still in this deal? What is your faith grounded in? Is it conditioned on a better marriage? Or is your trust in the Savior? You know the story in Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a great story, and the theology is right. Listen, if we go into the furnace, it's okay. We're not bowing on it. God is still God, and we're going to go in there. The thing about that story, though, is it has a happy ending. They didn't get burned up. Well, what if you get burned up, though? No, I don't have time, but there's Leah, Jacob's older wife. 
So not the one he wanted to marry. She, she was the girl nobody wanted. Dad didn't want her. She says she was hated. She was unlovely. Her sister, she was the looker. Her sister was the trophy wife. She wasn't. And I'll tell you, I, I don't know if it ever got... She spent a lifetime living unloved. But there's a moment that when she was finally face to face with the Lord, it's not recorded. But she's able to see that her son, Judah, it's from his line. It's from her womb that the Savior of the world would be born. Disappointment in this lifetime. Joy in the midst of her Creator. And then there's Habakkuk. Man, he, he wrestles. Not so much with his marriage, but with the the disappointment of the nation that was God's chosen and all the things that is, that's come upon it. God, you, you promised. And he said, I know I did, and I am faithful, and I keep my promises. And Habakkuk, what I do, I do for my sovereign purposes in my sovereign time. Habakkuk finds himself so overwhelmed at the end of it. The end of Habakkuk, he bows in worship and says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. And He makes my feet like the deer's and He makes me tread on high places. And if it never gets better, I trust Him. You can. Oh, I pray that it does. I pray disappointment is a season but if it lasts longer than a season, will you still trust Him? I pray that you will. We didn't get to the third point. I'll close with this. It's a little section from... C.S. Lewis's problem of pain. It's how it ends. He's speaking about the deepest desires that we have. Those things we just never seem to fully grasp. He says, you may have noticed that the books you really love are bound together by a secret thread. You know very well what is the common quality that makes you love them, though you cannot put it into words. Most of your friends, 
don't see it at all, often wonder why liking this, you should also like that. See, the reason is we can't tell each other about it. It's the secret signature of each soul. It's the incommunicable and unappeasable want. The thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work in which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work while we are, this desire is. If we lose it, we lose all. He goes on to say that the desire can't be satisfied fully here. It's, it's part of the design but can only be met in the designer. It says, in that day, God will look to every soul. He will look to every soul like its first love because He is its first love. What you have been longing for, you will know. Your place in heaven will, be, will seem to be made just for you and you alone because you were made for it. You were made for it stitch by stitch as a glove is made for the hand. All your life, an unattainable ecstasy has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. But the day's coming when you will wake to find beyond all hope that you have attained it. The great longing you have is not fully going to be satisfied in the one that you marry. Not the first wedding. Be satisfied in the great wedding. When you are presented as part of the bride to the bridegroom. Fit for eternity. In union with him. So if you would, would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for the morning that we've had of we Thank you for the word that you have preserved. I pray it would encourage us and where we need it so badly. I pray it would convict us in ways so intimately and graciously. And Father, I pray in all this you would kindle in us afresh our desire for you. Father, draw us to your Son, Christ. As we hope for, as we long for, as we in faith await His return and our eternity face to face with you. Father, I pray for the marriages in this room. I pray you grant them hope pray that you would grant them grace, forgiveness and repentance, a rehearsal of the gospel over and over, beginning today. Father, we ask this the only way we can, and that's in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. 
Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.